Hello everyone, Art Thomas today, back with you for this month's edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. It's June, and we are rapidly approaching the official start of summer. Now, for those curious from last month's podcast, we fulfilled our small part in the monarch butterfly migration, hosting about two dozen caterpillars which became butterflies, and after an hour or so of pre-flight prep, continued the journey north. Over the course of the few days as I watched them emerge and take flight, I remember this saying about one butterfly flapping its wings off the coast of Africa and generating hurricanes in the Atlantic. So I just watched about two dozen flap their wings here, and I don't know how scaling factors work in all this, but I think I'm going to up-check my generator just in case. Looking back at aviation history for this week, we are going all the way back to June 11th, 1926 when the Ford Trimotor made its first flight. The plane, produced by the Ford Motor Company, revolutionized air transportation around the world. The Trimotor was one of the first all-metal airplanes and was the first airplane built to carry passengers rather than mail. The original model seated eight passengers, but later versions would increase that to 13. The plane's three engines allowed it to fly higher and faster than other airplanes of the same time period, and it could reach speeds up to 150 miles per hour. These aircraft made a lot of headlines in their time. They were flown by Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh. Commander Richard E. Byrd and crew members made the first flight above the geographic South Pole in 1929 in a trimotor. And by the end of that year, it was used by nearly all the major U.S. carriers and played a dominant role in establishing domestic routes throughout the United States. And maybe not a well-known fact, but a Ford trimotor was used for the flight of Elm Farm Ollie, the first cow to fly in an aircraft and be milked in mid-flight. Not even sure where I would begin working up a test hazard analysis for that. This month, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jim Weatherby, Captain U.S. Navy retired and former NASA astronaut and director. You can find a link to his bio in the podcast description. So good morning, everyone. We are joined today by uh, retired Navy Captain Jim Weatherby and former NASA astronaut. Sir, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us on the podcast today. My pleasure, Art. Thanks for having me. So I I would like to talk a little bit, and I'm going to jump right in because the last time you and I met, you gave me a copy of your book, Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World. So so I want to jump right in with our first question with a topic uh, from that book, where you talk about the difference between managing risk and controlling risk. Can you give us a little bit more in-depth on what you think the difference between those two concepts are? Sure. The first thing that I think about is that most companies and most people don't really use the, the phrase controlling risk. Almost everybody talks about managing risk, and I would say that most companies even in dangerous businesses, manage risk pretty well. On rare occasions, we kill people, sadly. Um, And so in the astronaut office way back in 1998, we decided we needed to do something better. I began to realize the, the differences between managing risk and controlling risk. I'll, I'll share with you three significant differences here. Uh, the first is, as you know, in a company, when we manage risk, which is conducted by the engineers and the managers in the company, we, we consider risk as a notional calculation, typically likelihood times consequence. That's pretty valuable because we can decrease the risk of any assessed uh, process by either decreasing the likelihood of a, a bad event happening or decreasing the consequence of that bad event. So it's a you can.
can you can use this notional calculation in a in a company with disparate divisions where you can uh, collectively look and see where do we allocate resources to reduce the risk by either reducing likelihood or consequence. But now think about it from the point of view of the worker or the pilot or the operator who picks up the tool bag and goes to work on a pump or fly an airplane or conduct surgery in an operate, operating room. Risk is not a notional calculation. It's a real set of conditions that we face every day, every way. It, it's the hazards that we are confronted with. And so it's not notional. It's actual and it changes often, minute to minute, as I use a system, even if I'm using it in its normal intended operations, the risk can increase, the hazards can increase, the conditions are changing, and, and so it's, it's difficult for workers who are working in a dangerous field. The second significant difference between managing risk is that in, in a company, if I'm a manager or an engineer, and I deem the risk is too high, I can change the mission or change the system. The worker doesn't have that option. The operator must take the instructions, take the, the mission that is given to me and the system. When I was flying the A7 on the, on the ship, I couldn't change the airplane. I had to take the airplane that was given to me. I couldn't really change the mission. I could request a change, but it wasn't likely to happen. So we need something more if we're going to control the risk in the field than just simply rules-based procedures. And so that brings me to the third significant difference. Typically after an accident, you see a company will issue, they'll do an investigation, do an analysis and issue uh, changes and that come in the form of rules-based procedures. And these are very good and they're mandatory Unfortunately, they're non-adaptable and closed, and they often apply to accidents that we've experienced in the past. And so they will help you if you follow rules-based procedures and checklists. You will prevent most accidents, especially ones that you've experienced in the past. But if you want to prevent even, even unpredictable accidents or what some might consider unpreventable accidents, you need something more. And, and, and that something is what we call principles-based techniques. So now if I encourage the worker to follow quality techniques of operating excellence, if I, if I help the worker with uh, their mental attitude as they're working in the field, that's a principles-based technique. Now I can prevent if I'm using the principles-based techniques in conjunction with rules-based procedures, I can prevent all accidents, even unpredictable ones, and in fact accomplish more and improve the bottom line of the company. So one of the things you mentioned was, as we see so often, after an incident or an accident, you see a, a new set of rules or a new set of procedures or a set of restrictions that gets implemented to try to prevent that accident that we just experienced. So a lot of organizations can point to the fact that they have great safety processes or procedures, but is that enough to have a good safety culture? Uh, I would say no. It's, it's a great start. You need to have high-quality processes and procedures, and they need to be vetted, and you need to have a, a, a good system for making sure they're updated. So you do want to spend a lot of time on the safety processes and procedures, but it's more than that. You really need three things. One I've already mentioned, techniques to supplement the 
really need leaders in the organization who understand the purpose of leadership. When, when I ask uh, companies, you know, I travel around the country uh, helping companies in dangerous businesses, and I often ask, what is the purpose of leadership? Most people will tell me things like, well, we provide uh, the vision for the company, and we make sure everybody understands the mission, and we and we help them with the schedule, and we give them the tools that they need to do the job, and we make sure the logistics are working, and everybody has what they need. Well, that's great. Those are all transactional leadership qualities, or in the, in the vein of management. If you if you really think about the purpose of a leader, you need to be transformational. You need to help the workers and the operators operate with higher quality and be more successful. So in my opinion, the purpose of a leader is to help the workers achieve more individually and collectively with higher quality than they ever thought possible. Um, you know, that that's why the leaders get paid more money than the operators because they're helping more operators do better. And it's that discretionary or that increase in, higher quality and productivity that the leaders, you know, it's kind of the servant lead reality. My job is to help you do better. And then, of course, you mentioned organizational culture. Often, again, misunderstood, the best way I can think of to describe organizational culture is it's the collective assumptions that we hold that help us understand what we need to do to be successful. So if you're the leader in an organization and you want to improve the operating culture or the safety culture in your organization, you really need to do three things that are, the, the first one's pretty easy, which is to set expectations. You simply tell people and you, and you teach them and you help them understand, here's the way we're going to operate in our company. But the second one is a little bit harder. Now you must create the commitment for your operators to follow those expectations and use the policies and procedures, et cetera, and you need to create a process of accountability. Accountability is often misunderstood in the oil and gas industry and many companies, um, and we can go into more detail if you want later, but it's a very valuable concept that most people misunderstand. And then finally, if you do create the commitment for your operators to use the procedures, now you need to, as a leader, provide new experiences for them when they do use the procedures. In other words, make them feel really good about using the procedures and reward them. I don't mean financially. I mean, you know, hey, great job. I saw you use the procedures there. How did they help? Did they really help you be successful? And then the operator feels much better about using the policies and procedures and the techniques, even at 2.30 a.m. when the leaders aren't around. So that's how you really improve the culture in the organization. But those three things, the leadership, cultural improvements, and using techniques to supplement rules, policies, and procedures, I think is what will really help a company become great. You've had a lot of experience in a couple of different big organizations, in the military, at NASA, and in what you're doing now. For leaders and this is just pulling a little thread on that, you mentioned some things that they have to do. What have you seen that's been what you would call sort of effective leadership development or leadership training that helps grow those sort of skill sets in a leader? So great question. 
I've thought about that a lot uh, throughout my career. And my impression is I didn't really receive any active, dedicated training to be a leader. Now, of course, you get a lot of informal mentoring and, and building your leadership skills, mostly through observation. Uh, you know, I grew up in the U.S. Navy, and the, the one advantage, of, or there are several advantages, I think, of being in the Navy, but one significant advantage is there are fewer officers in the Navy, so we tend to get higher leadership responsibilities earlier in our career, but it's kind of trial by fire. You get thrown into the breach, and, and your, your job is to figure out how to motivate and inspire, uh, for example, 25 enlisted personnel uh, to do high-quality work. And, and you learn by watching other leaders, uh, some of them poor leaders, and you try to learn, don't do it like that. And, and you really try to learn from the good leaders and by observing. Uh, when I was at NASA, I worked for one of the best leaders I've ever known. His name was George Abbey. He was mentored by George Lowe, who brought NASA back after the Apollo 1 fire, where we tragically killed the three astronauts on the, on the launch pad. And the two Georges operated pretty similarly, uh, and, and they taught me those techniques of, of good leadership uh, quality. So really, you need to, in an organization, you have to have the best way to learn leadership is through experience, and you must have great mentorship and uh, leaders above you who encourage you to expand your leadership qualities and skills and allow you to make small mistakes as long as you contain the consequences and learn from those, from those errors. Fascinating discussion and tremendous insight. And if you're like me, you probably wish this discussion could go on. And guess what? It will next month when we conclude our talk with Jim Weatherby. Turning to the calendar of events, a few weeks ago, we held our virtual flight test safety workshop. And I want to thank again our sponsors, presenters, volunteers, and attendees. It really was a great event. Selected recordings from that event are now available on the Flight Test Safety website if you're interested. Our next Flight Test Safety event will be the European Workshop in London, England, 12 through 14 October. Also coming up, Oshkosh 2021 will take place 26 July through August 1st. The 2021 AIAA Aviation and Aeronautics Forum and Exposition will take place on the 2nd through the 6th of August virtually. SFTE is holding its annual symposium in St. Louis 10 through 15 October. And the Society of Experimental Test Pilots is having its annual symposium and banquet 27 through 30 October in Anaheim, California. The call for papers is out for that one. Please check the website for all of these organizations for the latest details on these events. So that's it for this month. Thank you for listening. Send us your feedback and ideas for topics you'd like to hear about. We really want to hear from you. Until next month, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.